At some point in life, everybody gets sick. And in the end, everybody dies. Now that's a happy opening to a Bible study, isn't it? Our passage today in Matthew 8, 1-22, is a very happy passage, full of joy and, and hope and healing and salvation. But it starts with sickness and has around it the aura of death. For you can't recount a rescue without first explaining the danger and the horror from which the people are being rescued. So we start today thinking of sin and sickness and salvation. And we look there at page 980 at Matthew 8. And this requires, though, an understanding of God's word in total and God's word about God's world. For God's wonderful world originally worked according to the way he made it, with humans in charge of the world, understanding its forces and structure, its energy, its beauty, its, its harnessing its systems and its biology for the good of all. Yet God's wonderful and magnificent creation has gone amuck and become dysfunctional. Sickness, disease and death continue to outflank the cleverest strategies. No sooner do we get on top of one disease than we discover another. So we have the wonders of modern medicine for which we truly should be thankful and yet there's still very little significant change to the reality that all of us are going to get sick and all of us are going to die. In fact, the majority of us in this room have taken medication in the last week. Just, just put your hand up if you've taken any medication in the last week. We won't ask you what it is. Yes, you see, the majority of us have. Here is the healthiest group of people in the history of mankind. Never have you had a, a healthier group of people than Australians of the 21st century, and the majority of us are taking medicines. Sickness is endemic to the human nature. All of humanity is under the sentence of death. I won't ask, put your hands up if you're going to die. We know the answer to that one. It's more certain than the taxes. And someone who doesn't put their hand up when asked that question is already dead. So here is the nature of humanity. All humanity is joined in rebellion against God, our maker and our judge. This rebellion can be active resistance against God. I know what God wants, but I'm not going to do it. Or it can be just passive resistance, indifference. I don't care what God says. But either way, and however we do it, we choose to live our own life our own way rather than living our life God's way because it is God's life that he's given us. And the wages for this rebellion is death. This rebellion is what the Bible means by the word sin. And we all participate in it. Within the Bible, sickness is the punishment for sin. Sickness is the punishment for sin. Now that's a sentence though that needs to be very carefully qualified. It's a statement that can be easily misunderstood so let's clear up what's being said and what's not being said. All sickness and death is the punishment of God on rebellious humanity. Now notice in my statement there that I'm talking of sickness in general and humanity in general, all sickness and death. Sickness is part of the death and dying that all humanity is going through because all humanity has rebelled against God. Notice then what's not being said. 
That is, point two, not all sickness and death is the punishment of God on an individual's act of rebellion. See, the punishment is of a general nature. All of us have sinned, all of us will sicken and die. It's not of an individual nature. You are sick because you have sinned. We as a whole sin and are under the sentence of death, but there is no correlation with how sinful an individual is and how sick he is and how quickly he'll die. One very sinful man can be in robust good health, while another innocent child may be desperately ill. However, we need to add a third point. That is, some sickness and death is the punishment of God on an individual's act of rebellion. That is the third one, some sickness and death. It's possible for God to punish an individual with sickness and the sense of guilt and unease that we sometimes have when we become sick is right to proper to check out. Is God punishing me at this point? Sometimes it is our sinfulness that leads to our sickness. Some forms of sickness, of sinfulness, of course, does lead to sickness. Now, sexually transmitted diseases, for example, um, the abuse of your body through alcohol. There are some actual activities that will lead to sickness, but there are others which are an actual punishment of God, not just a kind of natural consequence of our sinfulness, such as we find in 1 Corinthians 11, where we're told that people were sick because of their sinfulness. In Some had even died. So it's not right to say that when a person is sick that it must mean that they're sinful, nor is it right to say it couldn't mean that they're sinful. Let me summarise it with those three PowerPoint presentations again. All sickness and death is the punishment of God on rebellious humanity, but not all sickness and death is the punishment of God on an individual's act of rebellion, though some sickness and death is the punishment of God on an individual's act of rebellion. You can see how easily it is to be confused then for people. That we've got to work out, is your sickness this? Or is it just part of humanity that we are rebellious against God? But throughout the Bible, God promises a new age when there'll be no more sickness and death, no more grieving and sorrow, no more tears, when no longer will a child die or a young man or a young woman fail to reach full maturity, when war will be done away with and the lion lay down with the lamb and when death will finally be defeated and all that goes with death as we age and deteriorate slowly declining into the worn and weary bodies that so sicken so quickly and so easily it'll all be done away with bagging sagging balding blinding all that stuff that is the normality of what we're enduring at the moment done away with here then is the expected messiah he was to come as the prince of peace to bring this new age the, the new creation when all the enemies of God and God's people would finally be defeated and when God's people would live in peace, in health and prosperity and justice forever and ever. With the coming of the Messiah, God's healing power would bring resurrection from the dead for he would bring the new age of forgiveness and with it, therefore, healing and life and life eternal 
It was to be the reversal of the curse of God. Jesus fulfills the expectation that people had of the Messiah. He cleansed the leper. He raised the paralyzed. He heals the fevered mother-in-law of Peter. He drives out the evil spirits of those who are oppressed. In this healing ministry of Jesus, notice five elements that we have here in Matthew 8. Firstly is the element of touch. He touched the leper in verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Or in verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw mother-in-law lying sick with fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her. The leper could never touch anybody. He was unclean. Whoever touched him and whomever he touched would likewise become unclean. It wasn't just the contagion of touch. It was that the spiritual judgment of God would come upon whomever he touched, for such was the nature of leprosy. You had to separate yourself from the people of God, from the temple, and from forgiveness, living outside the community, calling out everywhere you went, unclean, unclean, so as to warn other people not to come too close. But Jesus reached out his hand and touched the untouchable. And instead of Jesus being defiled, the man was cleansed. The power of Jesus to cleanse was greater than the power of leprosy to defile. The leper knew that Jesus was able to heal him. His question, you'll notice in verse 3, was not a question of the ability of Jesus, but the willingness of Jesus. And Jesus touched him as he answered, I will be clean. And notice, where does he go? Well, he has to go to the temple and prove himself to be clean to the priests, offer up the sacrifice and enter into again the presence of God's people. It was the same with Peter's mother-in-law. Fevers reducing you to bed were the very sign of death coming upon you in the ancient world. But Jesus didn't fear the fever or the contagion, but by his touch overcame both and raised up the woman to new life. Secondly, there is Jesus' word. Firstly, his touch. Secondly, his word. For it's not only touch, it's speaking the word that can bring healing. Now, the centurion understood this. For he has explained about his soldiers and his servants in verse 9. He says, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and, uh, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus didn't need to touch anybody to heal them. He only needed to speak the word, and they were healed or raised up to new life. And so we see in verse 16, in verse 16, we read that ev that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. A friend of mine in a third world missionary country uh, was operating as a doctor, operating in the middle of a, uh, uh, a rebellion that was taking place. Uh, it was a dreadfully difficult situation. People were being shot regularly, although the newspaper said there was no problems, but he was actually having to dig the bullets out of, out of bodies, so he knew there were problems. 
and made worse by the fact that the electricity kept on collapsing and uh, he couldn't operate at night and so on. Uh, one night they brought in a member of the royal family who had been shot and a general came in with him uh, and uh, the doctor said, well, I'm sorry, I can't operate. There's no electricity, there's no clean water and I can't do it. And the general said, this boy is going to live or you won't. And he said, well, I can't do it. And the general said, what do you need? He said, I need the electricity. The general said to a, uh, one of the soldiers, electricity. What else do you need? I need water. Water. And he did just as this man that Jesus is describing speak. It, suddenly the electricity came on. Suddenly the clean water came on. And the man operated all night and saved the life of the young boy. And as a consequence, was able to preach the gospel in a country which was hostile to gospel preaching because he then had the royal favour placed upon him. But the power of a man in authority, if he just speaks... See, the general didn't do anything, my doctor friend said. He just stood there and told people to do things, and they happened because he was in power. Thirdly, this healing by word shows the authority and power that Jesus had in this world, you see. The centurion understood it which is why the centurion is described in verse 10 as such a man of faith. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel, I found such faith. Faith is taking God at his word. This man understood faith, taking the authority of the Lord Jesus at his word. He had confidence in Jesus' authority and power. He knew what it was to live under the authority of the Roman Empire. It meant that he had authority over other people. His orders would be carried out unquestionably to his satisfaction because behind his authority stood the Roman Emperor. As behind the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ lay God himself, that everything Jesus spoke would happen. Fourthly, this healing ministry of Jesus was the fulfilment of Scripture. We read in verse 17, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The prophet Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy, spoke of a time when the servant of God would come, a servant who would suffer dreadfully, even be killed by violent death of rejection, but a servant who would be God's servant. Godly in every way, even though he suffered so heavily. In fact, his suffering would be at the hands of God, for in his suffering, the punishment that we deserve would be placed upon him. He would willingly take upon himself what God would lay upon him, the sin and punishment of the world. Now, turn with me. You know the passage, I presume, but turn with me to Isaiah 53 for a moment. It's such a wonderful passage and it's being quoted. I can't resist the opportunity of getting you to look at it. It's page 742, page 742. Never miss an opportunity to bring out Isaiah 53 because it's the John 16 of the Old John 3:16 out of the Old Testament. It is the great verse. Look there with me at verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 4 page 742. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace. And with his stripes we are healed. 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Taking our sins upon himself, as God laid our sins upon him, he took our punishment, our death upon himself, dying in our place to bring us forgiveness. And so our healing lies in his stripes. See it there in verse 5, the end of it? With his stripes, with his wounds, the wounds of the cross, we are healed. For out of his death on our behalf comes healing and life eternal. And so, back here in chapter 8 of Matthew's Gospel, that passage is being referred to. This was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Fifthly, this of course explains the enormous popularity of Jesus. Wherever he went, for he was bringing the messianic age of peace and forgiveness and of health and of life, overcoming evil spirits and demons and sickness and death. Huge crowds gathered, lined up to be healed, and why not? If this was what was happening, surely they would come. Indeed, just ponder for a moment how many people would be in Bible study next week if I healed everybody in this room at the moment of any eye defect that we had so that we could all throw our glasses away and go back with perfect eyes. How many people would be here next week, do you think? And I guarantee they'd all be wearing glasses, wouldn't they? On the way in, anyway. If you could do this miracle of healing sicknesses by just a word, where the crowds flock to him, but that's not what he came to do. He came to die so that by his stripes we would be healed. Not just by his word of command, but by taking our illness upon himself, taking our death upon himself, we would be healed. And we saw it at the end of chapter 4. And it gave rise to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Now with the teaching given to the disciples, Jesus returns to his healing ministry, his preaching ministry, and just like before the Sermon on the Mount, the huge crowds come again. And that's why we see in Matthew 8 the unexpected Messiah. You can see it in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. That is the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Seeing the crowds, Jesus purposely went away from them. He went where they couldn't follow him. Instead of being drawn by the crowds to do more and more exorcisms and healings, he avoided the crowd, heading away from them into obscurity. For most people, Jesus' reaction to the crowd is very unexpected response. You would have thought that a man starting up a new national, international movement would hang around with the crowd, would welcome the opportunity to gather greater crowds, even if he was to teach them using his miracles first and then teach them later, being able to do more miracles in front of bigger crowds, that would get even more crowds and surely that is what you would want to do. You would have thought the Messiah who was coming to bring the new age would want every opportunity to heal the sick and to get bigger and bigger crowds. I read in the paper this week that there are people who can actually buy followers on their Twitter account. 
and there's a group in India that are actually making up false, uh, false accounts so that you can buy in 15, 20,000 phony addresses that you can then say, I'm being followed by 15,000 people for $200 it costs you. 15,000 people are listening to what I say, although actually they don't exist. Uh, but it makes you look impressive. Well, surely, Jesus, drawing a crowd is what you want to do if you're going to make any impact on the world. But Jesus' reaction to the crowd, his consistent pattern was to withdraw. See it at the end of chapter 4. Just run back to two pages, back to the end of chapter 4. Verse 25. Great crowds following him from the Galilee, the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, seeing the crowds... He went up in the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. And he taught his disciples not to trust crowds and not to trust healings that draw crowds. Look across to chapter 7, one more page across, chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Indeed, just over the page in chapter 7, verse 22, there's that dreadful passage I mentioned over the last few weeks, haven't we? On that day, chapter seven twenty-two. on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus never did his miracles to show his power and authority. Nor did he do his miracles to draw great crowds. In fact, the reverse. He avoided the crowds because they came for miracles. He didn't trust people who believed because of miracles. It was the centurion who believed without a miracle whose faith he marvelled at. Notice that Jesus marvelling at a faith. That's an extraordinary thing to say about Jesus, isn't it? Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marvelled. It was astonishing. He was a man, not a Jewish man, a Roman soldier. He was a man who believed on nothing else but the word of the Lord. That's the man who had true faith, real faith, So when Jesus saw the crowds, he withdrew. And when people in the crowd offered to follow him, he made these incredible and completely unexpected demands. Look down to verse 19. And a scribe came to him and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Talk of turning people away. As a business plan, this was madness. Jesus needed lessons in how to influence people, how to win friends, because this is certainly not the way to win friends or influence people. Here is a man offering to go anywhere with him and he's just given a rude rebuff here's another man offering service to but just requiring a time to attend to very normal human responsibilities towards his own father and he's given an even a ruder rebuff let the dead bury the dead you want to follow me 
come. Now's the moment. You presume the man's father was dead. Don't go around burying fathers who are not. Or it's possible that he wasn't dead yet, but the man said, well, he's going to die soon. Can I hang around and wait for him to die? Either way, Jesus saying no. Your loyalty, commitment, responsibility to your father is secondary to following me. That's an extraordinary claim. But you see, Jesus was the suffering servant. He didn't come to dispense quick healing to people. He came to take the sickness of the world upon himself. He came to bear the punishment of the world. He came to take our illness and bear our diseases by being crucified. Which is why the kingdom has such unexpected citizens in it. You see, it was the leper, the outcast of the world and society, the man whom everybody assumed must have been under the curse of God because, look, he's a leper, the man who had to go around everywhere calling out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, the man who could never go to the temple of God and worship God, who could never go to the sacrifices and find forgiveness for sins, the man who was cut off from God's people, cut off from God, cut off from humanity, cut off from the simple, single thing that is so precious to be touched. That's the man who was in the kingdom of heaven. That's the man who was saved. That's the one to whom grace and mercy came. It was the centurion, the Roman officer who was oppressing God's people, who was part of the occupying forces of Palestine, keeping God's people under the oppression of Roman rule. Surely that man cannot be one of God's kingdom. And yet, he was the one who had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who trusted Jesus could do it. He was the one who truly believed and whose servant was healed. And so Jesus gives that startling promise in verse 11 and 12. Not startling for you and me, but startling for first century Judaism. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not startling for you and me because most of us aren't Jewish, are we? The idea that Christianity is a world religion, not a Jewish religion, well, we just take that for granted. But it's the Jewish Messiah. It's the one who's come to save God's ancient people, who is prophesying here that it's not going to be, this kingdom's not going to be limited to the people of Israel. It's not going to be limited to the people of Judah. It's not limited to the Jews. Indeed, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of Israel, the fathers of the people of God, are going to be there at the great feast of heaven with Chinese and Indians and Australians and, and Africans and all manner of people are going to be there. You see, again, how we just take that for granted, but this was a huge step forward. That concept of the religion of the world. In fact, it wasn't even true of almost any ancient religion. They were the God of the Egyptians, they were the God of the Amalekites, they were the God of the Midianites, but the idea that there was the God of everybody 
That's a very strange idea. It's there in the Old Testament because God created everybody. But Israel had said, no, he's the God of Israel. But the God of Israel is the God of everybody. And Jesus is the one who broke out of Israel to the ends of the earth, bringing in you and me. Hinduism is still just for Indians. In fact, Hindu, India, it's the same word. The very concept, you see, that Hinduism would be for non-Indians, well, that's a very strange, bizarre idea. But Christianity is for all people because the Messiah came not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the sons of Adam, you and me. It's not who you would expect in the kingdom, but he came to take upon the sins of the whole world upon himself. He came to take your sins and mine upon himself. That is, the gospel message of Christianity is trust Jesus. That's the message. It's not about being good and getting better. It's not about being religious and becoming more religious. It's about trusting Jesus. Trust that he is the suffering servant who came to bear our sins in his body on the tree. Trust that he has paid the penalty for your sins and mine. So that when we come on that last day before our maker, be it our last day or be it the last day of the world, whenever it is, when we come before our maker, we stand and say nothing other than Jesus. Not me, not I'm good, I'm okay, I, 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 I hug around with the right people. I, you just say, Jesus. He is the one who saves me. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything that he has done. I trust Jesus. I don't even say, you must accept me because I trust Jesus. You just say, Jesus. Because I don't trust my trust in Jesus, I just trust Jesus. His death. And because he died for our sins and rose again, we trust Jesus who rules over all the world. All will one day come to do away with all, sorry, he will one day come to do away with all sickness and all death and bring us that time of peace and prosperity, health and joy that will know no end. But even now, we can pray to God for that healing, for that forgiveness. And we can receive now that forgiveness. And God in his mercy may also give us healing from time to time. There's no promise that that will be the case. Though if our sickness is caused by sin and we ask for forgiveness, we should expect healing. If our sickness is because of, well, we're part of humanity, he may or may not give us healing on any occasion. It's always right to ask him, knowing that he can forgive and he can heal whenever he wishes. But in the end, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, we're going to die and we're not going to die of old age. Old age is not something that causes death. We die of a disease in old age. The older I get, the more I like to point this out to people, lest they see that I should die because I'm old. Now you die of disease in old age and we all do and it's right and proper otherwise we'd have the apostles still hanging around wouldn't we? We all do but in Jesus we shall rise to eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you of the Lord Jesus Christ for his death and resurrection for us and that all our diseases, all our sickness, all our death is taken by him. That punishment of yours upon sin taken by him so that we may be forgiven and have eternal life. And we praise you, Father, in the name of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.